Is China's real estate market on the brink of collapse? How complex language predicts stock prices, and the new proposed tax bill, and what it means for you. Welcome back to the Invest Smarter Podcast, the show that helps results-driven people make results-driven financial decisions, so you can maximize and keep your wealth while spending more time doing what you love. I'm your host, Dave DeWitt. I've got a packed show for you today, as there has finally been some market volatility. And I say finally in jest because sometimes when the market is so calm for so long, you start to get that feeling of anxiety building up that at some point, this has got to break. It's totally normal. I know I feel it. Finally, we did have some volatility to talk about as there was speculation that China's real estate market was on the brink of collapse. But of course, as seems to be the case all the time now when something troubling happens, the market finds a way to shake it off quickly. And that is exactly what happened. But there are some really interesting facts and figures and sort of characteristics of China's real estate market that do kind of raise some eyebrows and do concern me a little bit. But let's talk about that and see what's really going on. Next, I'm going to talk about some articles regarding company conference calls that show that inflation really is on corporate America's mind. And also, there is a correlation between executives using complex language and stock performance. Finally, for our main financial planning segment, we're going to run through the new tax proposal and talk about what it means for you. Before we get started, please subscribe to our Invest Smarter monthly newsletter for all of our blogs and podcasts, a list of the most interesting articles I've read over the previous month, a recap of what's going on in the market, an outlook for the market, and more. Visit dewittcm.com slash subscribe. Please follow me on Twitter at DeWitt Capital. And also, I would really appreciate it if you left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's truly not for a pat on the back, but we do know that it is one of the best ways to spread the reach of a podcast. If you have a question or a comment, please email us at investsmarterpod at gmail.com. All the information on the show is for educational purposes only and should in no way be construed for financial advice. Okay, let's get rolling. So from the close of markets on Friday, September 17th, to the intraday low on Monday the 20th, the S&P 500 was down 2.85% about. And since then, the S&P 500 has clawed back all of those losses and is actually trading at the time of this recording higher than that close on Friday. So it was a quick whipsaw down, back up. And for a moment there, people were definitely kind of panicking. And it was all due to this Evergrande story, this Chinese property developer in, that has 300 plus billion dollars of debt. And the thought was that they were going to default on this debt. And people really were worried because, uh, and people were really worried because China has a very inflated real estate market. For, for context, the average home in China is priced at 27 times the average annual income for the citizen in China. 27 times. So a Chinese, so the average Chinese person would have to work for 27 years in order to make the amount of money that is equal to the value of their home. In America, it is only four times. So times your salary times four, and that is on average the price of your home. And I can tell you that that is very strange. Um, and I think this company Evergrande is has basically exemplified a lot of the problems that have haunted the Chinese economy for years and somehow China has able China's government has been able to stave off any sort of major crisis and i think this was the first time that 
sort of the market as a whole started to fear that maybe this was going to be the finally the collapse of the real estate market in China. And I guess the fears in the moment of all the selling was that Evergrande was going to default on $300 billion of debt. It was going to lead to liquidity and liquidity tying up and other real estate developers in China, them having problems and then sort of just spreading uh, widely across the globe and ultimately uh, infecting the U.S. markets as well. And that's why people were sort of calling it like a possible Lehman Brothers moment. But what people much smarter than me are saying is that due to the fact that Evergrande only has $19 billion of offshore debt, which is tied up in uh, institutions that are not considered uh, critical financial infrastructure, that the contagion is unlikely to be seriously felt in the United States, even if it le- even if it spreads to other developers in China. So Capital Economics Senior Global Economist Simon McAdam described the narrative that this was going to be a Lehman Brother moment as Quote, on its own, a managed default or even messy collapse of Evergrande would have little global impact beyond some market turbulence. He says, even if it were the first of many property developers to go bust in China, we suspect it would take a policy misstep for this to cause a sharp slowdown in its economy. David Rubinstein of Carlyle Group says, I suspect the Chinese government is on top of this. I don't doubt they will deal with it severely, but I don't think it will have the global effects the market is suggesting this morning. Of course, that was Monday morning when the market was selling off. And another important difference is that Evergrande holds land, not financial assets. So land is unlikely to ever, you know, go to zero. Uh, so, you know, Evergrande will ultimately have the ability to sell off land and pay down debt and uh, a structured uh, bankruptcy even probably wouldn't be too big of a deal. And the IMF has even come out and said that China has the tools and policy space to prevent this turning into a systemic crisis. So honestly, it seems like this whole issue has been swarmed with people saying it's not a big deal. And so it makes sense that the market was able to recover so dramatically. I still just find it so fascinating uh, how China has gone to a situation where the average home is 27 times the average annual income. China has been in a housing boom for the better part of two decades as money has poured into residential real estate, almost regardless of price. One of the things that has helped this problem become a thing is that China has barely any property taxes, which makes real estate a tempting asset. And also, property supply has outstripped demand in many cities. So there's this thing where there's these ghost cities built in the last 20 years to accommodate urbanization in China, and some of them are beginning to thrive, but there was this really sort of creepy uh, Twitter video of a 15-tower condo development that was demolished only eight years after it was built. Um, I'm going to post the tweet in the show notes. You can check them out. And also in China, real estate is tied closely to local government finances, and that has been in crisis mode since the late 1990s. Uh, land sales have become the primary form of income for most local governments in China. And although Beijing has tried to cool the market by restricting land sales, it has had limited success. The total value of Chinese homes and developers' inventory hit $52 trillion in 2019, according to Goldman Sachs. That's twice the size of the U.S. residential market and outstrips even the entire U.S. bond market. So how is this happening? I think one of the things 
that I've read in the in a Wall in a Wall Street Journal article from last year. Uh, they talk about how uh, the Chinese government is unwilling to let the housing market fall because it would wipe out their citizen. So the Chinese government is in a between a rock and a hard place because they're enabling speculation in housing there, while they're also at the same time trying to keep a lid on it because homes is Chinese citizens' biggest source of wealth. So this seems to be a long-term problem that China will have to grapple with ultimately. I'm not sure how it's going to end up, but it's something interesting to keep an eye on. So moving on, we know that inflation is on a lot of people's minds. I know I've seen it in the grocery store. Prices are moving up. I've definitely noticed it hit my wallet a little bit. But Wall Street is also contemplating inflation like it hasn't in a decade. So this article from Market Watch. Uh, called S&P 500 companies have inflation on the brain. By review, In reviewing comments on earnings calls from June 15th to September 14th, 224 companies, or around 44% of the entire S&P 500 index, referenced the term inflation during their earnings calls. And this marks the highest overall number of companies citing this term going back at least to 2010 using the current index constituents going back in time. This is, of course, not really surprising considering we have seen 12-month inflation rates above 5% now for two months in a row. Uh, We are seeing the fastest pace of inflation in three decades. Yet many of the members of the Fed still maintain that price pressures will ease and that they were mostly transitory. Though with wage inflation at high levels too, highest in a decade, the question is how much of that cost increase will get passed on to consumers, and we know there is no taking back wage increases, at least I sure hope not. It is important to keep in mind that inflation easing doesn't mean it will reverse. It means the rate of growth will slow, so we should not expect uh, the extra money we've had to spend on groceries to reverse. Uh, The rate of increase may merely potentially slow down. Now, staying on the theme of earnings calls, there is a really interesting research from Nomura, which was highlighted in an article from Bloomberg. And this is perhaps a more disconcerting analysis of earnings conference calls. Um, so here I have a question for you. Would you invest in a business where the CEO spoke in language you didn't understand? So what sounds better talking about daycares? This is company one. Our mission is to take the best possible care of your child while you work. Or our undertaking is to establish an environment that bestows upon your kin the utmost welfare while you operate at your occupation. <laughs> Which daycare would you choose? Well, it turns out the executives who use simple language on conference calls, their stocks do a lot better than stocks whose execs use complex language. So Nomura ranked the complexity of language during conference calls from Russell 1000 large cap companies between 2014 and 2021. They broke them up into deciles or groups of 100 in this case. The equal weighted portfolio of companies that had the most complex language returned 9.4% per year, and the equal-weighted portfolio of the 100 companies using the simplest language returned over 5% more, 15.4% annually. (laughs) Now, that's remarkable to me. I mean, what if one CEO is just very nerdy and has a big vocabulary? I mean, I'm I'm sure in some cases that is the case. But more likely, it's that if you have something to hide, you will hide it behind long words in convoluted sentences. The article uses an example of an Elizabeth Holmes quote to make the point about complex language. She, of course, is the infamous former CEO of Theranos, the failed blood testing company, 
And her company, of course, conducted in complete and utter fraud. So she once said in 2014 to a, to a reporter who was doing a profile on her something so vague that even Albert Einstein would have been left scratching his head. She said, A chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample, which is translated into a result, which is then reviewed by certified laboratory personnel. She added that, Thanks to miniaturization and automation, we were able to handle these tiny samples. I mean, I obviously have no idea what the heck that means, and I don't think anybody has an idea what that means because it literally means nothing. So, the methodology that Nomura used to determine complex language is called the Gunning-Fogg Index. On their website, you can paste in text and it will tell you how complex it is, with a, with a numerical result conveying how many years of formal education you would need to have, you would need to have to be able to understand it. So the Elizabeth Holmes quote scores a 28. So you would need 28 years of formal education to understand that. Now, I personally think that it's not understandable, period. But for context, Trump's inaugural speech scored 11.7. So a senior in high school would have been able to understand Trump's inaugural speech. And for context on the low side, the classic storytime book, Good Night Moon, scored a 3.65, so a third grader should be able to understand that. An excerpt from Adam Smith's A Wealth of Nations, talking about the invisible hand, scores a 20. And that's pretty tough reading, if you ask me. So as you can see, she is the epitome of complex language, equaling bad performance, and obviously her entire enterprise was a fraud and performed terribly. But the moral of the story is... If you can't understand it, don't buy it. Even if the company is solid in general, when we buy stocks of individual companies, which which is only recommended for certain types of people, a definite prerequisite should be that you understand what the company does and the executives plan it, explain it well on their earnings calls. And by the way, I am very cognizant that there is a pretty roaring thunderstorm going on right now. Um, so if you hear thunder in the mic, I apologize for that background noise. We're going to be getting a lot of rain here in uh, outside of Philadelphia. So anyways, we're going to move on now to the financial planning topic, and we're going to talk about the new tax legislation that is on the table. So the Ways and Means Committee uh, last week at the time of this recording uh, released the first draft of a major tax bill, and it's mostly aimed at increasing taxes to pay for other social policies and government infrastructure initiatives. But there are uh, a number of things in the bill that would definitely be affecting retirement planning for sure. Now, just to keep things straight, this is not the Secure Act 2.0 bill that is meant to enhance retirement or securing retirement for for people. Uh, this is actually more of a restrictive bill that's trying to sort of close loopholes or try to remove uh, perceived excesses in the current uh, in the current laws. So to help me explain this to you, I'm going to be leaning a little bit on a great write-up from Jamie Hopkins in Forbes. And he is the director of retirement research and the managing director of Carson Coaching. So let's get into this. So today, for individuals with earned income who are not participants in a 401k or other qualified account and whose spouse is also not an active participant, uh, they can contribute to an IRA regardless of their income or other retirement savings. So 
the new provision will limit any further contributions to an individual's IRA if the total value of the individual's IRA in defined contribution accounts, such as 401ks, exceeds $10 million at the end of the prior year. And that person also earns more than 400000 for single or 450000 for married filing jointly. So this would certainly only be really affecting the really high income earners, but it certainly will limit the amount of tax deferral savings uh, that certain people are able to continue to add to. The second big change is going to be on required minimum distributions for high income earners and large accounts. So as we know today, your RMD is based on uh, basically a life expectancy number and the value of the account at the end of the prior year. Uh, This new provision, however, would apply some new rules for those with larger accounts um, and significant income. So with the new rule, if the individual's combined IRAs, so traditional and Roth IRA, and defined contribution retirement account balances like 401k, exceed $10 million at the end of the prior year, and has taxable income above $400,000 for single, $450,000 for married, then there's going to be a new RMD, and it's basically 50% of the aggregate amount above $10 million. So if, so if you had $20 million um, in, your, uh, in total here, you would actually be paying, uh, you would actually be having to take out a $5 million RMD, since 50% of the amount above $10 million is $5 million. And further expanding on this rule, uh, if the aggregate amount is over $20 million, Roth IRAs and Roth accounts will be the first to be distributed until the balance fell below $20 million. This rule would be kicking in uh, in 2022. The next part of the bill I want to talk about is the limitations on Roth conversions for high-income earners. For over 10 years now, anybody's been able to do a Roth conversion. With this provision, they will be taking that away completely for high-income earners of over 400000 for single filers and 450000 for married filing jointly. So in essence, it would be completely wiped out, the Roth conversion, for these high-income earners. However, this would not kick in until 2032, so the high-income earners will have 10 years to uh, get those Roth conversions done, if it makes sense for them. And we know it makes sense for a lot of people. The next provision to talk about is on backdoor Roth conversions. So we do know that in today's law, there are income limits to be able to contribute to a Roth IRA. It's 140000 for single filers and it's 208000 for uh, married filing jointly. But there has been a backdoor way to get money into a Roth and that would be to contribute after-tax dollars to an IRA or 401k and then quickly convert that money into a Roth. Moving forward, there's going to be a provision that will essentially be ending this backdoor Roth IRA by disallowing any after-tax contributions to be converted or rolled into Roth accounts. Um, so this provision would kick in in 2022. So if it is passed, uh, there will be some time uh, to get as much as you can into Roth this way. But again, this will not be ending Roth conversions of tax-deferred dollars. The next provision to talk about is limitations on certain investments in IRAs. Currently, an IRA owner cannot invest his or her IRA assets into a business uh, that they have a 50% or greater interest in. So with that, you could theoretically have a 49% interest in a business and then invest your 
IRA assets into that business. However, the new rule would change the threshold from 50% down to 10%. Additionally, the bill would prevent investing in an entity that is not traded on an established market in which the IRA owner is an officer of that company, regardless of the ownership interest. This rule would kick in 2022, but there will be a two-year transition period for existing IRAs already owning these assets. Uh, This rule could definitely impact a lot of self-directed IRAs and could cause people to divest businesses and investments they bought inside of their IRA. The last thing I want to point out from this bill is that it kind of penalizes married people in a sense because the top threshold for married filing jointly is 450000 in so many of these provisions versus 400000 for single filers. So uh, you could imagine if, you're, if you and your spouse were not married and you both made $399,000, you would both be below this you would both be below this threshold and not have to face some of these restrictions whereas if you're combined and married you're well above 450 so that sort of disincentivizes marriage in a sense which i find very interesting so with all that said remember this bill is just one of many uh, it's not it's a draft it's not finalized it's not passed but i wanted to let you know anyways keep you informed as always And uh, that does it for today's show. So thank you so much. And we'll talk next week.